Tonight, we are transitioning into the reliability of the Old Testament. We discussed last week that there is a place and a purpose for historical reasoning in regards to the credibility of the Bible. And we briefly discussed the real matter that's at hand for this year, which is faith. Where does faith come from? How do we know if we have it? Is there such thing as assurance in your faith? And is there faith? If there is faith and there is truth, then should all things in life be submissive to what this truth is? How do we actively put into action our faith? Now, we are leading to a specific goal, both this semester, next semester, and a year as a whole. That goal is this. We want to see people transformed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and actively transforming the world for the glory of God. Amen, yes? We want to see people transformed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, and actively with the biblical worldview, now the sufficiency of Scripture, transforming the world for the glory of God. I also want to remind you of what we believe about the Word of God. I also said this last week, but because I'm going to be using a lot of sources outside of the Bible tonight because of the purpose we're trying to accomplish, I want to go ahead and lay again the foundation of this evening what we do believe about the Word of God. So this is part of the confession that we hold to. Our position is that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, without error, infallible. We believe that God has inspired the words preserved in the scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, which are both, reco- both record and means of his saving work in the world. We believe that these writings alone, say alone, alone. constitute the verbally inspired word of God, which is utterly authoritative and without error in the original writings. It's complete in its revelation of God's will for salvation. It's sufficient for all that God requires us to believe and do. And it is final, say final, in its authority over every domain of knowledge to which it speaks. We confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively. But we do affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, amen, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches. The Bible is to be obeyed as God's command in all that it requires. And the Bible is to be trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. So as God's people hear the word, believe the word, and do the word, They are equipped as disciples of Christ and witnesses to the gospel. They are our theme transformed. Now that we've laid this foundation once again, I want to transition to tonight's topic. The question at hand is this. Is the Old Testament reliable? Anybody ever wondered that question? I have wondered that question, so I'll just go ahead and get rid of the awkwardness. Yeah, I've wondered, is the Old Testament reliable? I think that any logical person and human being should probably ask that question, right? Is it reliable? Now, tonight will be much more of a teaching time than it is a preaching time. I do encourage you guys to take notes. Because it is a teaching time, I need to stick very closely to my notes. Uh, Because we're not going through a passage 
uh, I, I don't have like keywords here that lead me into an illustration or an application or breaking down what a verse means. So I'm going to be kind of glued to my notes so I don't say things that I shouldn't be saying, right? Uh, with that, though, I want to encourage you guys to stay locked in. Uh, again, ask what the night, that God keeps you focused, the Spirit keeps you undistracted, you can lock in, it's an important topic at hand. I also want to reiterate, and this is important, I want to reiterate that tonight will not be an exhaustive defense or apologetic of our topic. I am not in a debate tonight with an atheist. Uh, this is not a three or four hour session. We have not been building up this topic for a semester I called Ellen today and said, I'm in trouble. I have eight pages. Last week I peed, I, or I peed, I preached. <laughs> I can't edit that from the, uh, okay. And last week I preached for like 55 minutes, spoke 55 minutes, and it was six pages. So uh, I, I am, I'm, there's a lot here in the reliability of the Old Testament, all right? So tonight we'll not cover everything, I promise you. We are also going to continue to build week after week. So there's some things tonight that we won't, co- uh, we won't cover, but we will be covering this semester. We have a limited time, time tonight in this semester. So we're going to do what I believe and God has led us to cover that I think are highlights and important parts in regards to the reliability of the Old Testament. It will indeed be an overview of this reliability. I have a number of books and resources that I'd highly recommend to those who are interested in seeking out this question further. I want to take two approaches tonight. First, I want to discuss with you an overview of what we know about the Old Testament and its manuscripts and its reliability. And then I want to transition and address at the end a few arguments that critics have against the historical reliability of the Old Testament. The discussion tonight is not going to address the self-authenticating nature that is found in the Old Testament. Okay, so I am not going to address what the Bible says about the Bible tonight. We're going to get to that uh, in the self-authenticating nature of Scripture in a few weeks. We will, um, however, discuss a lot of outside sources. We will still look at what the Word says um, in the context of a historical reading and writing. So let's begin. We discussed last week that the Old Testament began being written around 1400 B.C. When Moses began writing down the law, or the Tanakh, the first five books in the Bible. It's the same for both the Hebrew and for the Christians. Remember, uh, Jews, non-Messianic Jews, reject the New Testament because they do not believe that Jesus is the actual Messiah. Therefore, they hold only to the Old Testament. The Old Testament for the Hebrews and for us is identical in content, though its layout is different. The first five books, the Tanakh, written by Moses. The last book in the Hebrew Bible uh, is Chronicles because it was indeed the last book written chronologically uh, with the exception of maybe some Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is around 430 B.C. The original copies of the Old Testament are called autographs. You may have heard that. The original manuscripts, the ones that were actually written by the men of God that God was speaking through, these are called autographs. It is true that all autographs of biblical books have been lost or destroyed. We don't have a single autograph today of any Old Testament document. Although we do have thousands of ancient copies. So immediately, we are faced with a pretty crucial question. 
on whether or not our copies, which are not autographs, are indeed reliable. And how do we know? How do we know that it wasn't forged or made up by the Jews who are wanting to be put on the map of history? Well, let's address a few things. The ancient copies that we do have of the Old Testament were copied by Jewish rabbis and Christian scribes. The Jewish scribes followed detailed systems for counting letters and manuscripts and checking for accidental variations. Christian scribes also showed great caution, having multiple correctors read through their copies to check for errors. This is cool. I gave you a date last week about the fall of the southern kingdom of Israel. Anybody remember when that was? When did the southern kingdom fall? Anybody know? 586 B.C. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom falls. Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians, and the temple in Jerusalem was looted and destroyed by fire. Looted meaning those who were taking it captive went in and stole things, took things for themselves, and the rest was destroyed by fire. Interestingly, though, according to the Bible, a copy of the law was recovered. How do we know this? We know this because Ezra the scribe and priest, Ezra, who was a scribe, this is important, he read the law aloud to the whole nation in Nehemiah 8. This is after the fall of the southern kingdom. This is when the people of God are moving back into Jerusalem and rebuilding the wall. Ezra had a copy. There was one copy at least that survived. We know this because Ezra is reading the law. So not all these copies that were held in the temple were destroyed. In Ezra chapter 7 verse 6, we see not only was Ezra a scribe, but the Bible says he was skilled in the law of Moses. Now there is a punishment that scripture shows us for those who forge these copies or these manuscripts. False scribes, many put to death. We see the warning in Jeremiah chapter 8 and Jeremiah 36, as well as in Nahum, which we'll talk about later. There's a warning against false scribes and those who add words. So, understanding the work of the scribe that was called by God is crucial to our talk of, is the Old Testament manuscripts reliable? Now, after the fall of the southern kingdom, Jewish scribes, this is incredible, had a very strict process of copying the law and eventually other books in the Old Testament. This is after the reading of the law. Ezra, it's shown, goes and now he's proclaiming to the people and these need to be copied, right? So Ezra the scribe is meeting with people and here's what was put into motion required of Jewish scribes to make copies of Scripture. They needed to verbalize each word aloud while they were writing it. Amazing. The whole copy needed to be reviewed within 30 days. And if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be destroyed and redone. The letters, the words... And the paragraphs had to be counted. The Jewish scribes knew the exact middle letter from both ends of the law. The document became invalid if two letters touched each other. When they would write the name Jehovah, they had to cleanse themselves and the pen with the ink in which they were writing before they could write the name Jehovah. The middle paragraph 
word and letter must correspond to those of the original document or same things, it would be destroyed. Now, the documents themselves could only be stored in temples and synagogues. They were not in homes. They were sacred. We talked last week of how they were held in three different, essentially, scrolls together. They were in three different compartments. You had the law, the prophets, and the writings. And therefore, we know to, to speak out of one book that was part of a collection was to acknowledge and affirm the truth of all of that collection. Since no document containing God's word would allow to be destroyed, a, a good manuscript, they were stored, this is interesting, or they were buried in a geniza, or a geniza, or a geniza, which is a Hebrew term meaning hiding place. In other words, the Jews would usually keep the copies of the law in a synagogue or sometimes in a Jewish cemetery. This is one of the reasons, guys, that we have no original manuscripts of the Old Testament today. Jerusalem later was destroyed by Rome in the first century. In the process of the scribes, what we just described was lost. But beginning again in the 6th century and into the 10th century AD, some European Jewish scribes continued a similar method for copying manuscripts of the Old Testament in the original Hebrew language, as originated by the scribes before Christ. This is a process that we call textual criticism. Textual criticism is this. It's the process of comparing and studying these ancient copies to reconstruct the wording of the originals. The copies of the Word of God that we have today are a product in form because of textual criticism. In other words, there are scholars who have spent their entire lives studying ancient manuscripts along with archaeological, paleographic, which is the study of historical handwriting, and linguistic study, speaking. They've been able to date ancient manuscripts and help us understand both the content and the context of a text. In fact, this is amazing, it is believed today by scholars that the New Testament autographs the original manuscripts can be reconstructed with roughly 96 to 97% accuracy. And no text that is questioned among the 3 to 4% affects Christian doctrine at all. In fact, most unsolved texts have little or no doctrinal significance. Here's how you know if a text is in question and falls among the 3 to 4%. If you've got a Bible um, that has some kind of commentary or footnote sometimes, you can find these variants at the bottom of your pages. You ever see the footnote that says, some manuscripts say dot, 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 or most early manuscripts do not include dot, dot, dot? That's referring to the 3 to 4%, or the 4, yeah, the 3 to 4% that is not specifically perfect according to the original autographs. So that's where that comes in, and they, and they make a note of that. Now, I, I want to pause really quick and let you know that really the reliability of the Old Testament comes down to, is the New Testament reliable? Because of all that the New Testament affirms, the greatest defense for the Old Testament, which we're not getting into tonight, we're going to wait, the greatest defense for the Old Testament is the New Testament. So at the end of the day, the real question that we'll see in a couple of weeks of, is the Old Testament reliable, comes down to, is the New Testament reliable. I also want to take a brief pause. This is really, uh, I hope this is uh, profound for, for many of you. 
I want to note a significant difference in the writing of the Old Testament and the, in the writing of the Quran. Which, of course, the Quran is the holy book in the Islamic faith. Remember, the Bible isn't the only book, in some sense, that claims to be a holy book or is that is claimed by religious people to be the holy book in absolute truth. So the Quran is one of the biggest argued ones in the world today against the Bible, even though it steals a lot from the Bible and acts like it predates it, which it doesn't. But I want to show you something incredible about the reliability of the Quran compared to what we just talked about in textual criticism with our Old Testament. The Quran was written during the early 7th century. This itself is worth noting. The 7th century A.D., Okay, so the, the final revelation, rather according to Muslims, the perfected revelation, because Muslims believe that Islam is the perfected Christianity. So the perfected revelation of Allah, according to Muslims, didn't come into existence until the 7th century. Interesting. Now, Muhammad was born around 570 AD in Saudi Arabia, what is today known as Saudi Arabia. Muhammad received revelations and encounters with Jabril, which is Gabriel, over the course of 22 years. Muhammad himself actually had consistent concerns, wondering if what he was experiencing was actually from God at all. In fact, there's a part of the Islamic writings that are called the Satanic Verses, and it's when Muhammad is confused and wondering if he's receiving this and being attacked and possessed essentially by a, by a demon, by the devil himself. But I want you to notice how the written Quran came into existence. Muhammad had died, so there's no more voice of the chosen prophet. There began to be divisions among the Muslim people. There was no written Quranic text. When Muhammad had died, there was no uh, canon of the Quran. There was no full manuscript with all of it together. There were broken up verses here and there, not even in the entire book found in different places that would be written on stones or different types of things. You'd have verses here or paragraphs there. But there was no whole of the Quran. Muhammad had received this revelation. He had died. It wasn't written down. The only true authoritative versions of the Quran that existed, you ready? Existed in the minds of particular men called the Qura. The Qura had memorized either all of the Quran spoken by Muhammad or at least parts of the Quran. Muhammad himself had appointed these men to be the reciters of the Quran. So here we have Muhammad's dead. There's no written down version completion of the Quran. In fact, the only, outside of a few verses written on different places, the only authorized version of the Quran is in the mind of men. There was at first no rush after Muhammad's death to actually write the Quran down by these men and make it into a single volume. Because there were bigger concerns at that time, such as, Muhammad's dead, who's going to lead the Muslim people? And how will this be decided? Problems began to arise quickly. You've got a division among the Muslim faith. The two groups still exist today. But what happened is this. 
a battle had taken place a few months after Muhammad's death against a false prophet and his followers, and a number of the men who had memorized portions of the Quran were killed. Many Qura were killed during this battle a few months after Muhammad's death. So the concern is obvious here, right? If more of the Qura, or all of the Qura, the reciters, if all of them die, then the Quran would be lost. You see the problem? So a panic in some sense, some sense began to happen and, and these men gathered fragments of verses and writings that had been taken down and written other things and then they brought in the reciters, the Qura, in order to put down one sacred volume. However, there were disagreements and holes. The prophet's dead. Who, who's to say what's authoritative and what isn't authoritative anymore? So a committee was chosen for the Quran. And they finalized a manuscript. Now, there are plenty more details to discuss what actually took place. But I wanted to note these specific details to reveal a couple things according to our topic tonight. Is the Old Testament reliable? How does it differ from other holy books? You notice that the writing of the Quran is significantly different from the care that the Jewish scribes took, don't you? You note that this is... It's different than even the councils and synods that took place during the early church in the first four centuries in discussions over what books were canonical or not. The reason it is different is because the early church trusted the manuscripts and historical documents that it actually had. The discussion was not translation and finding the word and writing it down and getting the people to memorize and quick trying to correlate something. In fact, if you read the Quran, you'll notice that it's kind of all over the place. There's no real order. It jumps from one thing to another. It's not chronological. It's because they were scattering to gather things. It wasn't written down in a specific way in the first place. The Quran has issues that the Bible most certainly does not. The discussions that happened in the early church was over what was Scripture and what wasn't of what's been written down, and also how do we interpret Scripture. We're going to talk about this a little bit next week with the Apocrypha when we get in the New Testament and the early church. We'll discuss more of those types of things. So I wanted to show you this parallel between the, between the Holy Quran, according to the Islam faith, and the Old Testament and its reliability. Quite a difference. Agreed? Now, let's focus back on the Old Testament. Something significant happened in 1947. The first part of a collection of ancient Jewish documents documents was discovered in caves near the Dead Sea. But people, this was 70 years ago. This is a recent finding that is incredible. It's an incredibly significant moment. And, and so before I discuss the fullness of what happened, I want to add here really quick a claim of conviction and just some logic, right? So John Skilton said it best when he said this. Now, ignore the chewiness and try to lock in. You ready? John Skilton said this. We must maintain that the God who gave the scriptures, who works all things after the counsel of his will, has exercised a remarkable care over his word, right? Has preserved it in all ages in a state of essential purity. We're going to talk about that in a second. And has enabled it to accomplish the purpose for which he gave it. To reveal who God is and salvation. He goes on to say this, you ready? This is spot on. 
It is inconceivable, inconceivable that the sovereign God who is pleased to give his word as a vital and necessary instrument in the salvation of his people, it is inconceivable that this God would permit his word to become completely marred in its transmission and unable to accomplish its ordained end. In other words, if you believe in the miracle of a God who created all things and has spoken his word to us, don't you believe that this sovereign, powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God has the ability to preserve the word of God for all generations? Isn't that what the Bible says? The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but what? The word of God endures what? Forever. So it's inconceivable to think that today we would not have access to what God has promised he would preserve. Makes no sense. It's illogical. And this is beautifully seen in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So here's what happened. In 1947, a young Arab goat herder investigated a cave after throwing a rock in and hearing something break. What broke was a piece of pottery. It was actually a scroll jar. The documents discovered in these caves belonged to a Jewish sect called the Essenes. They lived in a separatist community in the Judean desert near the Dead Sea. In AD 70, they fled from the attacking Romans and ended up here, and they left caves full of manuscripts. Now, it gets even more amazing. What was found was religious documents and extra bit of biblical literature, which we'll talk about next week, but also portions in 1947. In these caves was found portions of all Old Testament books except for Esther and Nehemiah. And we'll talk next week about why we believe Ezra and Nehemiah is uh, canonical and other books and letters that were found are not. These are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran Scrolls. These documents found in 1947 of the Old Testament represent manuscripts from roughly, are you ready? 250 B.C. and 50 A.D. These manuscripts are 2,000 years old. They, they are just a few hundred years older or, or younger, closer to us, than when Ezra and others began writing copies, which we began tonight talking about. Ezra reading from Nehemiah 8, the lot of the whole people after the fall of Jerusalem, after 586. Just a few hundred years later, we actually have copies now of those manuscripts of the copies that were read and written by these Jewish scribes. It's amazing. Now, the reason this is such a huge find is because before the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is incredible, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, the most significant and reliable and recent existing piece of the Hebrew Old Testament manuscripts were the Leningrad Codex, which was, dates back to 1008 A.D., and the Aleppo Codex, which is from A.D. 900. Do you notice what just took place? The Dead Sea Scrolls take us back over a thousand years of what our most ancient manuscript was. We went from having a reliable Hebrew document from 900 A.D., all the way back, jumping a thousand over a thousand years to 250 BC. 
Now, what's even more amazing is that the Dead Sea Scrolls, what was found in these caves, are you ready? What was found in these caves proved these two codexes that we had from 1900 AD proved these two codexes to be essentially the same Hebrew-based text used for our modern translations today. They were almost identical. And the variants have nothing to do with doctrine. Wow. This is amazing because there were over a thousand years separated between them. This shows you the care and the preservation that God had given and called scribes to do to preserve the manuscripts. This is different, folks, than the Quran. We also have ancient copies of the Old Testament translated into several other languages like Greek, Latin, Syriac, etc. That are ancient copies. Now, I want to transition now, okay? And I want to talk about, this is cool stuff, isn't it? I want to talk about some, uh, some of the claims against the Old Testament being historical and reliable. So let's start. Is anybody else geeking out a little bit? No? Okay. Let, <laughs> let's start with one of the big arguments against the Old Testament credibility. One of, them that, one of them that we see is that Moses could not have been the author of the Tanakh. The reason scholars critics of the Old Testament will oppose this is because clearly Genesis took place over a thousand years before him and the last chap and the last chapter in the law, which is Deuteronomy thirty four, is an account of Moses' death. So how can Moses write reliably what took place over a thousand years before him and also write an account of his own death? I want to take these two uh, separately and one at a time. Heather, are you still back there? Sweet. I'm going to have you in just a moment put that picture up, okay? Let's start with Genesis first. Genesis 1 through 11 itself takes place over a broad period of time. Abraham, I, I, I hesitate to give you numbers because it depends on what you believe about the creation story. Was the, were the six days of creation, seventh day of rest, actual 24-hour periods, were they longer, etc. That, that has nothing to do with our discussion tonight, uh, frankly, at all. Uh, and so I'm not going to necessarily give us numbers for that. But regardless, Genesis 1 through 11 takes place over a broad period of time. Let's say 2,000 years. Abraham comes in the picture around 2,000 B.C. This takes place in Genesis 11. Now, the Exodus is in 1446, over 500 years after Abraham comes into the picture. So between Genesis 11, when God calls Abram out of Ur, and Exodus 1, when we see the genealogy leading to Moses, and Moses as an infant, it's over 500 years difference, okay? Well, I want to pay close attention to Genesis chapter 4 through 11 with you really quick. These chapters, if we pay attention, show us the generations of Adam through Abraham, and they give us a glimpse into something pretty spectacular. In fact, if you do the math and pay attention to how long these men lived and how old they were when they had their children, you see something very cool. Some of my old youth are know, will know where we are going with this. So I want us to look at the screen. Go ahead and put that picture up for me, Heather. This is a picture that you can find on Answers in Genesis that shows you from when Adam came into existence 
all the way through Israel. The flood happened in 1656, or I'm sorry, no, the flood happened 1656 years after Adam, okay? So not, this isn't like 80 or BC. That's referring to how long people have been living before the flood comes. You see how long these men live, okay? So if you follow the graph, Adam lived 930 years. Seth was born when Adam was uh, 130, so he comes in the picture at 130, dies at 1042. Makes sense how you read this graph? This is according to the genealogy that we find in Scripture. If you want a copy of this, I, I have a copy printed. I can make copies. You can take it home with you tonight. Now, we see here something amazing. Remember, we're talking about the credibility of, could Moses have really written what took place in Genesis? We see here that Methuselah, whose name even means the year of the flood, right? Methuselah dies the year of the flood, He's seven generations removed from Adam, yet he was alive at the same time as Adam. Adam was still alive when Methuselah was born. Adam, the man whom God created in the garden, it was put to sleep and God put the rib out and created a woman. And then he got to name the animals and he walked with God and he talked with God and he heard a talking serpent. That Adam, Methuselah was alive while Adam was still alive. Now you look even further. Shem was alive while Methuselah was alive. The great grandson. You say, okay, big deal. But look at Shem, how long he lived. And you follow down who was alive for 50 years when Shem died. Isaac. Now, this is amazing. Ten years, or ten generations, I'm sorry, separate Shem and Methuselah, or Shem and Isaac. But they were alive during the same time. Moses now we see according, leave that up for me, Heather. According to Exodus 1 and 6's genealogies, Moses is four generations removed from Israel. Which you have here. Israel is whom? Jacob. So four more generations you have Moses. So we have a total of 26 generations from Moses to Adam. 26 generations. It's a span of about 2,700 years. Watch this. 2,700 years. 26 generations. And yet the communication only has to go through five, maybe six generations. For Moses to have known, just from sources outside the revelation of God, which I'm going to argue in a second, he would have only had to communicate through five to six generations. Today, it would be like going back several hundred years. We're not talking something that is unrealistic or inconceivable, right? It's, also think about this, guys. What these people saw and experienced, don't you think they were sharing it? Don't you think it was the talk of the town when people were born? Wait a second, you got to hear about God who created everything. Adam, who just died 20 years ago, and it's the year of the flood about to be. I got to, I know what happened while Adam was in the garden talking to a talking serpent. Get out of here. It's nuts, right? Five to six generations, maybe. Meaning this, even if we assume some normalcy of today's lifespan in regards to Moses' heritage, so let's say that Moses can talk with his grandfather, Kohath, who can talk with his grandfather, Jacob. Jacob speaks with his father, Isaac, who was alive while Shem was alive, who was alive while Methuselah was alive, who was alive while Adam was alive. That's six. And that's 
That's allowing for the normalcy of today when people live 70, 80 years. The reality is it might have been closer to five. Wow. With that in mind, it is no longer that difficult to understand that Moses could know very easily what happened during the previous 2,700 years. But remember, we don't believe, like Roman Catholicism, that man or the church or people determine what is the word of God. We reject that. We believe that the Bible is the word of God because God has spoken and revealed it. Therefore, I'm showing you outside resources of credibility. What I'm saying here is that we affirm and hold to the high view of Scripture that it was God speaking to Moses, revealing what had happened. And this is where we transition to Deuteronomy 34, which is the account of Moses' death. People say Moses could not have written the law because at the very end, the last chapter, it has the account of his death. Well, I want us to note a few things here, though. Moses, according to Deuteronomy 34, was taken up to Mount Nebo alone with the Lord. Moses and the Lord. God shows him the promised land. Moses couldn't go because of his sin striking the rock. God takes his life, and God buries him where? Nobody knows to this day where Moses was buried. So people will say, you see, Moses couldn't have written Deuteronomy. We would say, well, God could have absolutely revealed to him how he would have died, just like he did for all of Genesis. But if people were to oppose this supernatural act of God and say, no, somebody else must have written it, it would still have to be supernatural. No matter how you look at it, Deuteronomy 34 had to be a majestic revelation from God himself. Because even if Joshua wrote it, Joshua wasn't with Moses and God on the mountain when God took his life. Therefore, God would have had to reveal to Joshua how Moses died because Joshua wasn't there. In other words, the question here is is whether or not God is capable, again, of preserving his word and speaking in such a way that we can have confidence in what he's revealed. Our answer is obviously an overwhelming yes. Now, those who object, continue to the next argument, those who object to the Old Testament will say, the Old Testament is simply allegory. It's, it's stories. It's fables meant to give us good moral values. Or it's a Jewish attempt to have their own version of what so many other religions already have. The claims of the Old Testament and stories of the Old Testament are too ludicrous, they'll say. In fact, one of the most profound atheists of the day, Richard Dawkins, says this of the Old Testament God. This is what Richard Dawkins says of the Old Testament God. And many people would agree. Some of you in this room might even struggle agreeing with the same thing. Dawkins says this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Big words, Dawkins. Right, Rudy? But think about it. Even if you don't understand half those words. 
The ones that you did understand. Think about it. A talking serpent. The first two sons born in the world. Murder. Nephilim. Giants. A race of men because women conceived with the sons of God. Fallen angels or demons. A flood that destroys the earth and mankind. A spreading and confusion of tongues and nations. A command to Abraham to go up on a mountain and kill his son to show his loyalty to God. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The turning of the wife into salt for turning back. Genocide of infants. Destroying nations. It is indeed a terrifying God that we find in the Old Testament, isn't it? And for the person who is man-centered, and for the person who doesn't see the seriousness of sin, for the person who doesn't have a high view of God and His holiness, they believe, obviously, that this is a sick, twisted God. But we should pause here and ask ourselves this. Can we deny history based on our own liking or disliking of what happened? Can we reject the Bible as truth because we think God is a jerk for telling Abraham to kill Isaac? Does it make it any less true? Is this kind of rejection credible? This rejection makes man the center of the universe, doesn't it? It puts us in the God seat of determining what is right and wrong. And to be more specific, it is allowing us, the creature, to determine whether God, our creator, is just in what he is doing. This seems awfully backwards to me. In other words, where's the disgust of the idolatry and selfishness of man Where's the disgust of the pride of the people? Why isn't Richard Dawkins looking at man in the Old Testament and saying, greedy, sexually immoral, murdering, lying, cheating? Whether it's in the Old Testament or today, is this not a reflection of sin and not God? Remember, God is the merciful one who loves us and saves us in spite of these horrific actions. The scandal in the Old Testament is not that God commands his people to go and wipe out a wicked nation, including women and children. The scandal is that God can look upon people who have been sinful against his law, broken his holiness, and still have mercy and an undying, steadfast, faithful love towards them. That's the scandal. That's where Dawkins and the rest of the world gets this wrong. In fact, let me go a step further. Dan Barker, who works with Dawkins, he's also an atheist. Dan Barker actually was once a Baptist preacher. Preached for 15 years. Professed Christ as his Lord and Savior. Preached what we would preach in many ways. Later recants of the faith. Comes out as an atheist. And now is doing work with leading atheists and debating people on whether or not God is real. Is the Old Testament reliable, etc.? But Dan Barker says this about the God in the Old Testament. He shoots himself in the foot. He says this, if this God, the God that Richard Dawkins portrays, if this God does exist, Barker says this, we have a moral obligation to denounce him the immorality of such a tyrant. 
Now, wait a second, Mr. Barker, because that's an interesting statement. Let us be clear that in his argument, if God does exist, the God who created all things, who on earth does Dan Barker think he is to hold God accountable to Dan Barker's morality? If this God does exist, we should be holding this tyrant accountable? Wait a second. If God exists and he created all things, he he holds us accountable. We don't get to determine, as creatures, what the creator has determined is right and wrong. Man has sinned against God. God. Let's be clear. God has not sinned against man. It has not happened. Let us also be clear that every person who finds himself under the wrath, please know this. Every person who finds himself under the wrath of our holy creator is absolutely deserving of that wrath. We deserve the wrath of God, people. No one deserves the grace and mercy that is received from God. God is a just God, a holy God, but He is a merciful, gracious God and a loving God to those whom He has called His own. Now, one final argument I want to address tonight is that critics will say there's simply a lack of evidence of these stories. There's a lack of finding some of the sites that we find in the Old Testament. Now today we live in a world flooded with an overwhelming mass of information in many fields. There is a range of opinions on almost everything. Probably everything. Of these opinions is the outcry that the Old Testament is fiction and of very little historical value. You with me? Say what's up. All right, cool. We're, we're, in the, we're in the final lap, coming down to the last 150 yards, all right? We're, we're making the sprint full, full head steam ahead. Now, this, this is one of the most important parts of the night, so lock in with me. In 1753, Astruc tried to separate Moses' accounts in Genesis into parallel strips of text or imaginary scriptures or sources. In other words, 1753, there was an argument that Moses did not only write all of Genesis, but that Genesis should be split among many sources, many of whom are imaginary. In 1805 and 1806, with no independent evidence at all, the vet speculated that in 621 BC, the Hebrew priests deceptively invented Deuteronomy. This was a claim made in 1805 and 1806. And finally, in 1878, the House set all the law elements of the Bible's first five books, the Pentateuch, later than the imagined narratives, giving a guesswork evolutionary reconstruction of ancient Hebrew literature, religion, and history. In other words, the argument came out that these sources are not credible, the authors are not credible, and these things were written at a much later date, specifically the prophecies to show things that had already happened to have some kind of clinging to hold on to for the Jewish nation and for the faith, etc. This is known as the JEDP theory, or the Documentary Hypothesis. The theory is based on the fact that different names for God are used in different portions of the Pentateuch, and that there are detectable differences in linguistic style of the Old Testament. 
The JEDP theory goes on to state that the different portions of the Pentateuch were likely compiled in the 4th century B.C., possible by Ezra. However, all of these claims were and remain today 100% hypothesis. There is no supporting external data for these claims. There's no data, no sources for these claims. The Bible itself is the best defense against these claims, as we discussed in many passages last week that affirm the various Old Testament passages and scrolls and who actually wrote them, which is why I said earlier, the best defense for the reliability of the Old Testament is the New Testament. We'll see in a little bit. But from around 1800 to the present, in today's Middle East, an entire, uh, amazing, an entire world of the ancient Near East, which is the world also of the Bible, has been progressively unveiled. Archaeological digs and finds. The systematic exploration of hundreds of sites, the discovery and decipherment of thousands of texts covering 3,000 years in some 20 ancient languages and over a dozen scripts we owe to archaeologists and to the labors of Assyriologists, Sumerologists, Egyptologists, Hittitologists, and other specialists of these different nations and people. In other words, today we have a vast, detailed background to the Old Testament's literature, religion, and history. I say all the time, Age is one of the ones who goes out with me on Friday morning. We plead with women to keep their, keep their babies. And there's a man there that we got to talk, you got to talk to extensively this last week. I got to talk two weeks ago. And I have to constantly tell this man who's an atheist, your arguments are outdated. You're using science that's 50 years old. Science has proven your claims about a fetus wrong. The leading abortionist today and scientists claim it is life. The heart starts beating at 21 days, right? I tell him, your science, your argument is old news. You used to claim 50 years ago about the science, what science shows us, therefore it's okay to kill our babies. Today, the science says it is a baby, and now we're saying, well, it's not the choice of the baby to live, it's the choice of the mother. If it's inconvenient, they should be able to kill the baby. You see, it doesn't matter. What evidence shows the heart is wicked. Men are sinful. They reject God. Evidence doesn't produce faith. We keep saying this. It's the same thing here. We have to, today we're saying to these people, your evidence is outdated. 1947, 70 years ago, shows us an incredible reliability of the Old Testament. What say you now, critics? You now have to change your argument against the reliability of the Old Testament. The same thing continues to happen. To look into these things more specifically, I'd encourage you to check out a vast amount of resources at your aid today uh, of archaeology and things of the like. One specifically that deals with archaeology and, and Bible digging is uh, K.A. Kitchen's book called On the Reliability of the Old Testament. It's a phenomenal read. It is a tough scholarly read, by the way. <laughs> now, even aside from archaeology and recent day discoveries... The biggest blind spot, the biggest blind spot in the Old Testament critics is that of fulfilled prophecy. One of the biggest things we have on the side of Old Testament reliability and credibility 
is fulfilled prophecy. In fact, critics of the Old Testament, their only argument against these prophecies, the only argument, they'll admit, against these prophecies is that the prophecies must have been written long after the event predicted came to be. But if you remember, according to the JEDP theory, there's no evidence for that. One significant problem with that mindset is that no one has been able to explain how the prophetic con men of the Bible managed to pull off their deception so consistently, convincingly, and completely over so many centuries and generations. That's amazing. The small book of Nahum itself in the Bible contains a clear prophecy. This is incredible. The book of Nahum contains a clear prophecy of the final destruction of Nineveh, which was the capital of the powerful Assyrian Empire. If the prophet had written his prophecy after the event, it is hardly likely that the Jews would have been so gullible as to have accepted the retrospective prophecy of a prophet that they knew to still be among them. Archaeologists have discovered how accurate his descriptions in Nahum are. Some of the fire-burnt palace reliefs can actually be seen today in the British Museum in London. The city was so utterly destroyed in 612 BC that two centuries after its destruction, the Greek historian Xenophon sat on top of the ruins, had no idea what city it had been, and it was the fall of Nineveh. It would be another 2,200 years before the site of Nineveh was positively identified. Daniel itself has a massive amount of prophecy, much of which has already been fulfilled. The fulfillment of the majority of the prophecies found in Scripture are found in Christ. But we're going to wait for that conversation to be had in a few weeks. Critics also once claimed that King David never existed. Again, old science, old facts. They argued that since they could find no record of David outside the Bible, he must not have existed. The common idea was that sometime after the Persians came to power in the 6th century BC, that David and Solomon were invented by Jewish scribes in order to boost the morale of the Jews in exile. However, in July 1993, say 1993. In July 1993, at Tel Dan, in northern Israel, A broken basalt inscription was found, which is dated by archaeologists to the 8th century B.C. This was found in 1993. If you remember from our dates last week, David came into the picture around 1000 B.C. The inscription claims that the king of Damascus, which was Ben-Hadad of Syria, killed the king of Israel, that would have been Jehoahaz, and the king of the house of David, that would be Joash of Judah. This account, people, is found in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 1 through 25. This means that the dynasty of King David was known 250 years before the scribe supposedly invented him in the 6th century B.C. You see the problem? Today, few of these critics now deny the existence of David as a figure of history. But they've moved on to their next argument of why the Old Testament is not reliable. The problem is not with the evidence, people. The problem is what the Bible claims. It's what the Bible requires of sinful people. It eliminates the man-centeredness and selfishness of today, which is live how you want, believe in something, and it's going to be butterflies and skittles when you die. 
And I'm sorry, the Bible rejects that. We reject the Bible because light has come into the world and men chose darkness, John 3. The problem with blind people is not that they need light. They need to see the light. The light is there. They love darkness. That's the problem with the reliability of the Old Testament and the New Testament. My final example is that of Isaiah. There are liberal scholars who are skeptical about anything that points to supernatural inspiration of the Bible. The supernatural can't be real because of the supernatural involved. They've, they've risen a theory of multiple Isaiahs. There's Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah. They believe that this theory of, uh, the theory of Deutero-Isaiah came about the near end of the 18th century, the late 1700s. This theory of two Isaiahs states that Isaiah wrote the first 39 chapters, but one of his students or unnamed people wrote chapters 40 through 66, which are the most profound, by the way, prophecies found in Isaiah. It's nice that they come up with this theory. It's believed to have been done after the Babylonian captivity started, which is prophesied in Isaiah 44 through 45. Now, this allows for critics to renounce so-called prophecies about Christ found in the later part of Isaiah. Prophecies about the reign of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, Christ descending from David, the new covenant, the Gentiles receiving the gospel, Israel rejecting Christ, etc. This theory would argue that these were not written by Isaiah. And some would even claim they were written years later after the events would have happened. This is the late 18th century. There's two Isaiahs. One, the second half was written after the prophecies had already happened problem is the Dead Sea Scrolls happened. Because in 1947, a complete scroll of Isaiah with all 66 chapters in the same scroll, scroll which dates back to the 2nd century BC was found. There was no separation in Isaiah, hence there were not multiple authors and the prophecies were indeed that. Prophecies. Messianic prophecy is strong and important evidence for Jesus' claims to be God. Isaiah's writings were completed many centuries before Jesus Christ was even born, and they are completely accurate. Remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls contained more than one complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, composed well before the birth of Christ. And the book of Isaiah was included also in the Septuagint which is the earliest version of the Old Testament scriptures translated at least 300 years earlier. All 66. What say you, critics? There are more examples, but for the sake of our time tonight and us needing to come to an end, and the objective that we've set forth, we're going to leave the reliability of the Old Testament to this and to further discussion or study on your own. So in conclusion... Let me just remind you tonight of the reasons we cover for reliability of the Old Testament. The fall of the southern kingdom. Ezra reads the law. Found. Saved. Scribes meticulously copy. According to the very minute letter, word, paragraph. The copies of the word of God that we have today are informed because of textual criticism. Scholars spent their lives studying archaeological, paleographic, and linguistic studies, looking at ancient manuscripts, being able to date ancient manuscripts and help us understand the content and context of a text. The Dead Sea Scrolls date manuscripts back to 250 B.C., 
with virtually no altering variables with the Hebrew copies that we already had in the Leningrad and the Aleppo. There were only five, maybe six generations of communication between Adam and Moses. It is illogical to reject God based on a character of God that we reject or are disgusted with how God has done things or currently does things. In other words, man does not get to individually dictate truth. If there is no God, there is no truth. And life is meaningless. There are an incredible amount of archaeological facts discovered in the Middle East that revealed biblical sites, biblical people, and biblical stories. And finally, the Old Testament is full of fulfilled prophecies that can be verified today. God, who gave his word sovereignly, will absolutely preserve it to the end of time. Amen to that. You may have noticed, for all you super spiritual people out there, we left out a tremendous amount of evidence about what the Bible claims about itself and the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that these two things are the most profound defenses of the reliability of Scripture we have. But we're saving that for when we transition past historical credibility and reliability. It's intentional because we'll be addressing that at a later time this semester. So hang with us.